Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Well, hey, Zach, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm exhausted, but well. <laughs> Getting through it. You know, time changed. Lots going on today. Um, Zach, can you go ahead and give us a brief bio and tell us kind of some things you're interested in? Um, sure. So I am professionally, uh, I spend most of my time as a principal at 1517 Fund, uh, a pre-seed stage venture capital fund spun out of the Teal Fellowship, uh, primarily backing founders who are uncredentialed outside of tract institutions. The way I kind of like to put it as a pithy little uh, blurb is uh, dropouts, renegades, and deep tech scientists. Um, so spent a lot of my time reviewing investments there, uh, working with our current portfolio, things like that. Uh, we're a small team of four. So it's a little bit of everything kind of, kind of world. Um, Outside of that, I've authored um, a few books, uh, several self-published, one published by McGraw-Hill Education, McGraw-Hill Business. uh, And I've done, in the past, I've done some career coaching with some folks, um, which mostly is, and ends up being uh, early stage business coaching, helping people make the leap from um, a traditional job to doing some kind of employment by themselves. Oftentimes that's consulting or something attached to more of what you might call a personal brand. Uh, so knowledge-based skill work. Uh, outside of that, you know, I, uh, yeah, that, that's that's the vast majority of how I spend my time. <laughs> that's great, Zach. And I wanted to mention, can you name the book? Uh, it's excellent, the McGraw-Hill book. Sure. I found it very actionable just for the listeners. I, I put it up there with like, Scott Adams wrote a career help book that I thought was excellent. It's right up there with that and zero to one. It's kind of my favorite. Oh, that's, that's three business books. <laughs> it's very, it's very actionable. I mean, you know, most business books are very fluff driven and right. you know, useless, but I thought yours was quite helpful. Yeah. I, I found that I am most productive when I'm driven by some kind of spite. <laughs> and, uh, I, I felt, I, I agree with you on business books. They're horrible. Most of them could be blog posts, like one blog post, one, uh, a short one, a short blog post. Right. Um, so I set out to write a book that is like, okay, I want this to actually be worth the, like whatever, 18, $19 that people spend once it's, uh, discounted by Amazon. So it's called how to get ahead. Uh, and it's primarily a career book in the sense of, I work with a lot of very ambitious, very competent people. And often these people have a couple problems facing them. One is the whole world really is their oyster and they often have a sort of analysis paralysis uh, where it's difficult for them to focus in on one area. They get shiny object syndrome, things like that. So it includes a section on how to uh, focus on the few things that really matter for advancing your career, both what really matters to you uh, and what really matters to actually make the advancements, uh, which then really focuses on how people signal their skills. So I work with people and have worked with people who come out of you know top elite universities and people who haven't stepped foot in a, on a university. And both groups of people need to find a way to actually signal real skills. So the book breaks down a lot of different things like that. Um, I, I, in, in some very like meta strokes, I, I do take some inspiration from, you know, zero to one and, and in less meta strokes, inspiration from Scott Adams, uh, 
how to fail big at almost everything, how to fail at almost everything and still win big is the name. That's, of the that's what I was thinking of actually. Yeah, yeah. You're actually not the first person to compare it to that, which I, I again, I find uh, very flattering. I think that Adams is, has a lot that he's right onto there. So yeah, it's um, designed to be actionable, designed to be, you can pick it up, you can read any chapter, you'll get the, your money's worth out of it. And then if you read the whole book as a whole, it, it's supposed to give you kind of like a meta system for thinking about the career. That's great. Yeah. And I, I gift it to anyone who asked me for career advice and I don't know why they're asking me, but if they ask me, that's I'm exactly like, how I, I wrote it. I wanted people to gift it to people who are asking for career advice. So that's great. That's great to hear. My agent will be happy to hear that. <laughs> Excellent. And we'll, we'll put a link to it down in the show notes. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and th- this, uh, it really is switching gears too. So I hope you're ready, Zach. Um, so you're from rural Pennsylvania, correct? I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, about okay. um, about 10, 15 minutes from where uh, Flight 93 crashed on 9-11. Gotcha. Oh, wow. Um, so I, uh, I'm i from rural eastern North Carolina. And, you know, I go back home. I live in a big metropole now. And I go back home and I, I tell people, you know, they say America's divided, but I just don't think they have any idea how divided it is and how big the polarity is and in, in belief systems between rural America and urban America. Um, and it's interesting to me because, you know, I've worked in London, I was in, I didn't work in London, but I studied in London for a little bit. And the difference between London and a metropole in the United States was much smaller than rural America and urban America. Yep. And I think that's probably just a symptom that's widespread in the West. But um, do you feel that that's true? And is there anything to be done with it? to be done I mean, about that i mean it certainly is true um you just have to spend some time in both places and when i say spend some time in both places i don't mean like a lot of you know uh upper middle class lower upper class uh metropole folks going and spending time at an airbnb in like rural west virginia i mean actually spend time out in these places meet people um talk to them figure out like what their hopes dreams and fears are and often you'll find that they don't have a lot of hopes um, because it's it's difficult, right? It's very similar to the, div- I think in a certain weird way, it's very similar to the divide between um, working class people in the cities and non-working class people in the cities. The divide between the urban and the rural is very similar in a weird way. Um, it's not necessarily a working versus non-working class thing because you, you get a middle class out in the country. Um, right. You get, a, you get a, a professional class out in the country, but it's a very different kind of professional class. You spend time talking to medical professionals who work at small rural hospitals, right? It's a very different uh, experience of life. I wouldn't call it a quality of life, but a very different experience of life that they have than a doctor working in a, a large metropolitan area. Um, yeah, so I, I think it, it's absolutely true. I, what to be done about it is, I mean, my, I don't want to call it a knee-jerk reaction, but my, my intuition is that it, it, there needs to be, there's a couple things going on. One is a lot of rural areas experience a brain drain, um, just as like a lot of secondary and tertiary metro markets uh, experience a brain drain to primary metro markets. Uh, and that ends up causing a lot of uh, these areas to be looked over when it comes to general wealth gain um, over generations. So reversing brain drain is probably part of it. Um, but then the question is like, how do you do that? You actually have to make these places places that people who have, again, the world is their oyster, where they'll actually want to be, right? Right. Um, 
and that can be that can be at times difficult. As I've gotten older, I've gotten more and more amenable to the idea of like something like national service, um, because oh, I think, I th- yeah, I think what ends up happening is there is a, and I say this as someone who who used to have like fairly uh, uh, libertarian um, uh, inclination. So to to hear myself say that, uh, <laughs> and to hear people who've known me for a long time say that, comes as a surprise and. It's not something I've spent too much time thinking about, um, but the, when I do think about what is to be done, you know, with big quotation marks around it, um, I, I kind of like the idea of something like a national service model because I think what ne- we have right now is we have the universities working as a de facto national service that people go into. the the government The government pushes it like it's national service. It's expected of people. Um, who have any sort of uh, opportunity in front of them as if it were national service, that if they did anything other than go to university, then they're almost uh, disregarding their national, their civic duty in a, in a, in a sense. Um, and I think what you end up having happen is you end up having um, people who are going to be successful in life. Um, you know, so we're talking about people who are probably high IQ, high conscientiousness, high openness, all aggregating in the same places. Um, and then once they aggregate in the same places, they often get drawn into career tracks that all, also tend to bring the fertility rate down, um, which right. is another important question I think you have to have when you're talking about the urban versus rural divide um, and just the future of America in general. So if you were to do something like a national service program, you don't want it to be something where it would end up being a um, just another set of feeders, right? Where the, the university right. tracked people are going to go to this, this version of national service. And the people who aren't going to go to university are going to go to this version. And they're all going to be pulled with each other and you're going to have assertative mating at that, at that level, right? Um, yeah, so it's, it's a big question. Um, I suspect it is something like you, you deploy young talent to places they wouldn't otherwise go so they can ex- be exposed to real problems inside their own country. Uh, and actually have some skin in the game in solving those problems. Uh, and hopefully those are being problems that they wouldn't otherwise uh, be asked to solve. I'm not a believer in most human capital theories of higher education. Uh, again, I think that the way that education, pri- higher education primarily works is uh, the universities are very, very good at selecting for people who are going to be successful anyway. Um, so the, the joke I like to tell my friends is if you wanted to start a university, the way you do it is you start a private club. And in that club, you do an IQ test, but it's not actually an IQ test because that's illegal. Uh, so you do something that's essentially an IQ test uh, and something that's essentially a tracker for conscientiousness and something that's essentially a tracker for openness. And then you select the people who are in the top you know, quartile or the top decile of whoever comes through. And those are now your club members. And you filter out, you, know, you, some, you, you do some filtering to get you know, your dangerous um, like dark triad characters out for the most part. So they don't bring the whole organization down on itself. Uh, but for the most part, you bring those people in, you do that for 10 years, and then the people from the first class are going to be successful because they were going to be successful anyway. Right. And then the people in the 11th class are going to be even higher quality people because what they're doing is they're just imitating the successful people they see around them who are now graduates of your club. Um, so I think that's effectively how universities work. There's a, a small mu- multiplier on success from like network, um, again, assertive mating elements, probably more than anything else. Uh, and 
maybe some exposure to resources, but I think a lot of these are resources these people probably would have found anyway as a function of high conscientiousness, high openness, and high intelligence, whatever you want to call intelligence. I know IQ is a controversial measure of that. Um, so I, I, I feel like mixing the bag up a little bit would be helpful. <laughs> so do you think this divide between urban and rural America has changed in the last century or was it like this 100 years ago as well? I mean, if you go back, that's a great question. If you go back to the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers and the Constitutional Debate in the 18th century, you can see there was this divide back then between the Jeffersonian system and the Hamiltonian system. Um, so I think it's something that's just kind of inherent in the American model as a function of just how large the United States is. <laughs> We're a very, very big country. Um, you sometimes see this image go around on Twitter that uh, I, I have to kind of pick on that is a... a, a um, a, a, you see this in urban, new urbanist Twitter sometimes of uh, high speed, uh, proposed high speed rail system oh, across yes. the United States. And I always look at that and I think it's kind of funny because it's usually based on either a Japanese model or a European model. And there's a couple differences between the United States and Japan and Europe and largest being population density and size. The other largest being that both of those regions were completely demolished in the 1940s for a very specific historical reason and rebuilt with trillions of American dollars. Uh, we have plenty of airports. We should make better use of our airports. Um, but that aside aside, yeah, I think that's is something that's kind of inherent in the American model. Um, and I just, I, the thing I kind of worry about more than anything else, you know, I was thinking about the, the question that Will posed to me because um, he, he mentioned it over a document he sent me before the interview. And in a certain sense, I don't think the divide is a problem. I only think the divide becomes a problem um, when the differences are amplified and the stakes are, are increased. Um, and I think what we've kind of had happen in the United States, probably as a function of mass media, is that the differences are amplified and the stakes are increased. Um, so my solution politically would be some something like, I wouldn't, wouldn't call it decentralization, I would call it probably something more like localism um, or, uh, yeah, subsidiarity, something like that, where the stakes on the national scale are massively decreased. And then the differences become like the difference from county to county. Um, and people should be more concerned with who their, you know, county commissioners are than who their senator is. Um, it's also uh, re repealing the popular election of senators is probably also a good move in the right direction. And that one follow-up question to that, Will and I were talking about this before, just before we got on. One of the effects of the pandemic is a lot more people are working from home. Mm -hmm. That allows them to live anywhere. And there's there seems to be movement out to the rural areas to have families, raise children, just quality of life, I guess. Do you think that can have a leveling effect? I hope so. Um, I think that it will, you'll, you'll just end up moving the goalposts a little bit because the reality is people are probably moving to um, places more like Asheville, North Carolina, rather yeah. than moving to like suburbs of Wheeling, West Virginia. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe some people are. Um, I, I think that it's, it's going to have a generally positive effect in getting people outside of a few urban hubs. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a, a massive solution for the problem. And and Zach, you know, you mentioned localism a little bit and this kind of brain drain from rural America. I was just reading Sound and the Fury by Faulkner, and it 
it, one of the weirdest elements was one of the characters that went to Harvard and came back to practice law in you know rural Mississippi. Like this is just, that, that is the that, it was so foreign to me to see that. Like that that would never happen nowadays. Well, if it would happen nowadays, he would be planning to run for senator in like four yes, years. Exactly, right? I'm be governor. <laughs> That's how it would work. I'm be president, and it's gonna be great. Right. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, do you do you have any thoughts on on how? why that shift happened because that that is that's really bizarre to me you know i talked to a hospital administrator administrator recently and he said even in his career there'd been a shift where physicians would you know usually you know they take a little bit more money to go work in a rural area but now he's got to pay them two three four times as much as they would make in charlotte versus in rural north carolina to to live in these different places which just struck me as like a real cultural cultural shift I mean, if, if you're from a, a rural place and have moved to a city, you know what it feels like to go back to a place that has a dwindling population. It's a very weird existential experience. Um, it, I don't want to call it depressing because I feel like that's too easy of a word to grasp, to grab at. Uh, but if you're asking people to go someplace that just genetically speaking, and I just mean just as a function of who's moving in versus who's moving out is dying. It's really, really hard to sell people on that. You know, there's this old Kevin Williamson, I think article um, about rural America that was just abhorrent. Um, and he made the, the claim in it that it, it was at National Review. Uh, he made the claim that these places deserve to die because the uh, resources, you know, that their economic drains on the country, their moral drains on the country, et cetera. And I think he's absolutely wrong about that, but it's difficult to paint why he is wrong to somebody who's just looking at something on a spreadsheet, right? Right. I suspect he's looking at he's looking at the data on a spreadsheet, and 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 looking like how these people, how people there on average vote, um, how the general quality of life comes down again on a spreadsheet. So you have to get people to move there. They have to have roots. Um, people move to cities in part to, again, for mating purposes. If you, if you're like a doctor who doesn't have a family yet and you want to have a family, it, it, you're going to be, you're much more, you're going to have a much better dating market in New York, even if you're making half of what you would make in rural Pennsylvania. Um, Family is a huge part of it. Most of the people I know who who did who did go to elite universities and go back to their hometowns, if they didn't do it for like some weird borderline sociopathic reason to run for office someday, <laughs> they did it primarily because they have family. Um, so I think the 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 earlier you can get people to responsibly have families and put down roots, the better. Uh, operative word there obviously is responsibly, um, but I think we've taught people that it's far more expensive to start a family than it needs to be. Um, Brian Kaplan has really good research on this out of George Mason University. He has a nice little book called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. And he does admit, you know, it, it's moderately expensive to have the first child, but every additional child after Each that's marginal child's less. Yeah, yeah. The, the marginal cost ends up going down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you can if you could really focus in on that first one, I think for a lot of people, both the the actual financial cost and also the psychological cost of it. Um, I, and to directly answer your question, because I realize now I haven't really answered the question about the, the move. Um, big part of it, as you alluded to, is financial. Um, I think the financialization of the economy in the 1980s probably played a big part. Um, you know, being a bond trader in the 60s and 70s was actually not that like lucrative of a job. <laughs> 
Um, most of the jobs we think of as very extremely lucrative Wall Street jobs were like pretty middling, like banker jobs Interesting. In, in the 60s and 70s. So you have the rise of pri private equity in the end of the 60s or uh, beginning of the 70s. You have the financialization of everything in the 80s. I think that just naturally moves, moves a lot of money to the financial hubs, which tend to be uh, the coastal urban hubs. Then you have globalization. Money, no matter where it is in the world, looks for yields. And it turns out the United States has just been the best place, the best open market, at least in the world for yields. So now all the money in the world is going to a handful of American cities. That's exactly what we have going on right now. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who is super wigged out by uh, the housing market right now. And yes, it is concerning. I do think we are seeing indicators of inflation pop up in um, things other than consumer goods, although they're starting to see some price increases in consumer goods. Uh, but really more what it is than anything else is like the US stock market and US real estate, whatever you want to, whatever American financial good market you want to look at, money all over the world is a function of the global markets being brought to their knees because of coronavirus is going to the United States. And it, that's what's really been happening on and off over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years. And that just means if the money isn't going to go directly into wages, say for doctors in your case, it's going to go somewhere in the local ecosystem. So you're just going to have more and more expensive uh, amenities in these, these cities than you're going to have out in the country. And even if the cost of living is much lower out in the country, the, the quality of life, especially for somebody who is now... Um, their tastes have attenuated to uh, those of a large city. It's just, again, it's going to have to be a very non-financial kind of decision on their part. That's a great point. I, I remarked to someone just on the amenity side, there was more diversity in dining within uh, half a mile of my apartment now than within 50 miles of where I grew up. Oh yeah. And it's just like, you know, this crazy scale thing. Um, I, I remember I had to drive three hours growing up to go to a Persian restaurant. <laughs> and like, that's not, to, that's not to, to ding the town I grew up in. You know, there's, there's a lot of good things about what that town can represent. Um, but I think about that today where I'm like, oh, you know, to be fair, where I live now, it doesn't have a lot of Persian options, but I can find something, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> like It can happen. Yeah, right. Like it should not be a memorable experience for me growing up to have gone to a Persian restaurant. Right. But now I know exactly the dish that I had because I was like 12 years old and the first time I'd ever seen a Persian restaurant. And now I see the dish and I instantly remember that. That's just a, a function of exactly what you mentioned. Interesting, interesting. Um, what are your current thoughts on free trade? I know, you know, you studied with, have you studied with Jason Brennan? Or at least no, I know read a Jason. lot of his stuff. You know um, Jason? Okay. Yeah, cool. I know Jason. Awesome. I've interviewed him. Um, Jason's prolific. That's one he sure of my, is. He's, I don't know uh, how he puts out so much. It, it's content. incredibly admirable. He's also like one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Um, he's one of these people that if you're like friends with them on Facebook, they're they're a little um, they can be a little harsh with people, and you think <laughs> like, oh man, this person, I don't know if I want uh, what it's going to be like talking to them, and then you meet them, they're actually like one of the nicest people you've ever met. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've interacted with Jason. That's great. Yeah, I studied under one of his kind of uh, mentees, I, I suppose at UNC Chapel Hill, that's why oh, cool. um, I, I'd heard him. But yeah, so free trade, you know, are you, I, I've become more skeptical of free trade 
since my time in college, which actually seems to be a natural effect when they do these studies with eco eco one on one students, you know, they forget everything. Um, but I am, you know, China shock theory, you know, the loss of American industries and industrial power is is fairly concerning to me just on a strategic level. And, you know, looking at the pandemic, how we were just unable to build, you know, certain things. My sister just, she just left, but she worked at the only vaccine filling facility in the U S and it was located in Eastern rural, Eastern North Carolina. And that's the only one we have left. They're all in China. That's terrifying. Like, that's if absolutely that was, if that terrifying. Was gone, you know, you know, think about closing it. You're like, Jesus, you know, <laughs> what happens then? Um, but yeah, free trade, you know, what are your current thoughts on it? I mean, my, my stances on a lot of isms um, tend to come down to uh, the what's the prediction power of the ism gotcha. and the people behind it, right? Um, and for the free traders, um, you know, one of the big things I keep coming back to, and, and I've had this conversation with friends of mine who are like die, died in the wool anarcho-capitalists who will even kind of get a little eh, on this topic, <laughs> um, is... The free traders told us that free trade would liberalize China, um, but it seems like all it's done is it has authoritarianized uh, the country. Made them much that, more powerful, and has made China much more authoritarian. China much more powerful, right? Um, it's kind of like there, there's this old observation by uh, Nathaniel Brandon, great psychotherapist who's written a lot of books on um, self-esteem. Uh, he has one of his books. He talks about uh, the self-esteem of romantic love, and I think free trade is kind of like that. Um, he says, you know, uh, people tend to uh, fall in love with people of similar levels of self-esteem and what you have, but it just ends up dragging that person down. So I think free trade and liberalism is kind of like that. <laughs> um, we might Got have it. seen some examples where it's led to liberalization, but I, I think just by the sheer number of people in a certain population group, it seems like on average, it's actually led to uh, has opened up the opportunity for a lot more authoritarianism. Um, it, so it's almost like this weird idea people had. It, it was like they, they were reading Karl Marx and they're like, once you hit this standard of purchasing power parity, you suddenly become like this capitalist, you know, liberal nation. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe perhaps more charitably what it was, was, you know, you hear the old stories about blue jeans bringing down the Soviet Union ah, yeah, or like Gorbachev. I think it was Gorbachev. It might've been, might been Khrushchev even before that. I'm going to a grocery store in the United States and thinking it was all fake. Right. Um, and like, I think that's probably the, really what they're doing it. is it's, it's more of a political economy kind of prediction. Just extrapolating. Um, yeah. Extrapolating out. And it's like, eh, yeah, the Chinese have studied the USSR. Um, and just because something worked in the USSR does not mean that it's going to work elsewhere. Um, so yeah, for, for a lot of the reasons you listed, strategic reasons, I'm skeptical at least of trade with certain authoritarian regimes. Um, you know, I, I heard somebody say once, so I, I, I did not come up with this phrasing, but I, I think it's genius. And I, if, I was, if I could spend more time thinking about trade and globalization, this is probably the direction I would go in. Uh, this gentleman said once, you know, if I were uh, running American economic policy, it wouldn't be America first, it would be America's first, um, which really means shortening our supply chains, um, strengthening our strategic relationships in the Western hemisphere. Uh, I think the reality is at the end of the day, uh, the United States has uh, lasted as long as it has without uh, an invasion from outside forces because we've got two large bodies of water on both sides of the country. Um, 
like we just we got yeah. really really lucky and and uh you know our, our former heads of state were really smart to try to build the country from one side to the other side um and I do worry about a certain Far Eastern authoritarian regime putting down roots in Chile, um, Mexico, um, Panama, um, other other countries. You know, said said regime to, uh, has taken out advertisements on New Year's Day in Chile, um, telling the Chilean population how much they appreciate their national relationship. Um, Chile is an important; uh, it's an important minor a uh, mineral uh, mining uh, hub. So that that's concerning, right? Like I, I would want those minerals to primarily go to the United States. Um, so North and South America, um, West Africa, the reality is um, the per perception of Americans is probably better in West Africa than it is anywhere else in the world. Uh, West Africans remember the amount of resources that George, um, one, that one of the George Bushes, George H.W. Bush, uh, I believe put into uh, fighting AIDS there. Um, that's important. That goodwill should we should use. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm skeptical of um, I'm skeptical of the liberalization narrative behind free trade. I understand a lot of the arguments for free trade. Um, I also though understand that like national morale matters, and people need to believe that the future is going to be better than the past. And that's yes. hard to do. It, like you can look at the raw GDP per capita, but when that GDP per capita ends up concentrating in a few places with relatively few people, that leads to political instability. And political and social instability is it, political and social stability is kind of a prerequisite for that increasing GDP. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, uh, I, I'm talking about massive inequality of some kind. I don't know if it's necessarily income inequality. I feel like that's probably the wrong thing to focus on, um, but I would call it like optimism inequality. So Interesting. Wages should keep pace with 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 like the cost of living <laughs> at the very least. Right. Uh, it, it seems very important, and I wonder if a lot of these symptoms we've been talking about are you know they're they're symptoms of slow growth or slowing growth so maybe growth still it's it's still growing but not as fast and that's a real problem when you when you feel like your kids aren't going to be as successful as you are you know that, that's very it's a very negative feeling um yeah. and, and that's something's very foreign to us in america well and and, like. and the other the thing that that leads to is people just have fewer kids that's, um, that's true too and, and there are lots of reasons why people have fewer kids um you know, central planning can be one of those reasons. You know, we talk about fertility crises here. Again, a, there's a certain authoritarian Far Eastern regime that has a much worse uh, fertility yes. crisis that will lead to a pension crisis. Um, so there, there are lots of core reasons that that um, one should institute natalist, pro-natalist policy. Um, some of which being optimism, maybe too much optimism. Um, but I think pessimism is a big part of it. And you, you meet lots of people who say, I'm not sure if I am ready to have a family. And it's like, well, why? You, you would only say that if you honestly did not feel like the next couple of years were going to go well. Yeah, if right. you believed that the pace of your quality of life was going to increase, you're going to get that promotion. You were going to get that uh, wage increase. You're going to be able to move to that better apartment or buy that house even if you're not in a very good place right now, you're, you understand like it takes a while for kids to grow up. You, you'd have, you'd be more comfortable having children. Definitely. And that's, that's a huge problem in our society. Uh, and this is connected to another question I had for you. Um, you know, 
a lot of people's lives seem to be fairly devoid of, of meaning at this time. At least, you know, that's what you see on Twitter, right? And people bemoan this fact. And I do think it's it's true to a certain extent. Um, uh, you're a cat. You're Catholic, correct? Yeah. And and how is that? You know, working in tech, where essentially, you know, everyone I know is you know fairly agnostic, at least, or even atheist. Uh, you know, how how has that experience been? And um, yeah, I, I I guess that's my question. Yeah, it's funny. I have more people who ask me like, "How how are how are you, you know, Christian and 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 working in tech?" than people who actually like make me feel uncomfortable being Christian working in That's tech. Good. Yeah, uh, it is good. It's a it's a it's a really good uh, kind of disparity to have. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that like the materialist atheists, um, the new atheists, that 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 group of people, they have a lot of sway over um, again, particularly um, urban oriented. Uh, high competence individuals. Um, but I also think there's kind of a historical reason for that. So, you know, uh, one of my colleagues, Danielle Strachman, um, used to, she's the co-founder of the Teal Fellowship, used to work at the Teal Foundation. And we were talking one day on a bunch of us, uh, some of our founders, myself, her, um, and one of our founders and I were talking about religion. And she just kind of brought up, you know, we get people that would come to these these teal summits for the, the 20 under 20 fellowship or the teal fellowship and they would always assume that, that peter was an atheist because he was in tech and then they'd be really surprised to find out that he was a christian right um and danielle kind of asked us like why do you guys think that that that's kind of like the overarching sentiment that people have and i, and I honestly think uh, without abstracting it too much. I think a big part of it is that the new atheists were just early adopters to uh, new media. Mm. Uh, if you were growing up in the early 2000s, you were listening to podcasts or on YouTube, it's just far more likely you were going to come across Sam Harris than you were Bishop Barron. That's right. Uh, like just, just as a fear, as a, as a mere function of exposure. Um, and I think that the, and to the extent that you would come across a lot of um, uh, re religious uh, and religious adjacent thinkers, it was often kind of like the AM talk radio people, right? <laughs> unfortunately, um, which end up giving people, I think, a, a bad um, impression, myself included, Grab. I'm, I'm a convert to um, Catholicism and almost a, a revert of sorts to Christianity. Um, because people often were exposed, and speaking for myself here, to the much lower caliber arguments for, um, you know, uh, Christian metaphysics, um, Christian theology in general, um, and certainly for ecclesiology. Um, so I, I think that that's a big part of it. So for me, it really, I have not found that people are um, dismissive of it. I try not to like, I don't put it in people's faces for work. Like right. I'll post some, you know, pretty church pictures on, on Twitter sometimes, I think, and share some articles on, on those topics. Um, and what that has actually led to is more people in tech who identify either as Catholics or as Catholic adjacent coming and talking to me in private. So if anything, it's been good for it. me, um, unintentionally. That makes sense. And could you, uh, could you pitch Catholicism? So you're talking to two and I, I, you know, I would call ourselves inverse Catholics. We're both Quakers. So, <laughs> and, I, and I, I'm convinced if you're Christian, you should probably be a Catholic or a Quaker. Like this is like, <laughs> these are your two real options. Everything else is just like shades of gray in between. I, I don't know a whole lot about Quakerism. I, I did go to Penn. So I, I was oh, nice. exposed to a lot of like Quaker images. Right. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, no, so I mean, again, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, um, for me, a lot of isms come down to the predictive power of, of the ism and of the, um, of the primary proponents of that ism, right? And for me, the pro primary propo proponents of Catholicism tend to be the Thomists. Um, Got it. So when I was flirting with materialist atheism, probably the furthest I got was like um, a, a weird sort of like uh, deism, like all, like I, I joke with my friends, it's like crypto Masonic deism. Um, nice. So <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah, so that's, that's probably the furthest I got. And um, when I was flirting with some of the mat more materialism, um, you know, a friend gave me Ed Fazer's book. Ed Fazer's a, a, a neo-scholastic thinker out in California. Um, that I, I think just uh, decimated materialism, just really made the the philosophical argument that you can't you can't have philosophical arguments within the realm of materialism, about uh, about about which materialists try to use materialism as their set of, their ground of arguments, right? And that was really helpful for at least keeping me out of that world. Um, but for me, a lot of the the predictive power of Catholicism, but especially Catholicism through the lenses of um, Aquinas, Aquinas's um, exposition of it. Um, and to a certain extent, even though he's more in the Platonist vein, um, Augustine's exposition of it um, just lined up with my experiences of reality, right? Like the predictive power of the human condition um, seemed to be very well explained by uh, the church's doctors. Um, you know, the, the deeper, and the deeper I, I interact with them, the more I, I tend to find that that's true. Um, so I, I, I'd identified closely with, um, virtue ethics before becoming a Catholic. Um, so it was easy for me to, I don't want to say it was easy for me to grasp onto, but, um, the learning curve for me in, in Thomist moral theology, was not that difficult to overcome. Um, Aquinas calls, uh, Aquinas calls Aristotle, um, the philosopher, uh, when nice. he's when he's writing, so he'll, he'll talk about like the evangelist. He'll <laughs> talk about the philosopher, and he's talking about Aristotle in the case of the philosopher. Um, so that was an easier learning curve for me. But again, the predictive power of um, the Catholic worldview of of the sinfulness of man and the the need for reconciliation and the need for grace was just. It, it, it cohered very closely with the data I saw in the world. Um, and then, then there was an aesthetic element of it as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a particularly effective person. Um, so it, it's difficult for me to fall into, I have some friends, for example, and this is not, not at all um, bashing Pentecostals, uh, but I have some friends who are Pentecostal and uh, you'll, you'll see like Pentecostal church services. And it, it's, it, to me, it just seems very effective with an A, um, gotcha. a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of emotion. Um, and, and, and I get it, like if, if their theology is right, it would be a very emotional experience. Um, so I, I understand that. Um, but the, the most that I've had, the affective experience in a church has been in, um, both the the traditional the traditional Catholic mass and in some Byzantine masses, which look more like an Eastern Orthodox mass. Um, so again, to the extent that I understand the theologies, the way I, I came to Catholicism um, was okay. I I generally think the 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 narratives and the historiosity on Christ are true. 
Um, it's one of the most well-documented things in history. And if it weren't true, we would have like a real knockdown argument against it. And we really don't. Um, so that being said, if I had to look at a Christian system that is going to carry the most accurate explanatory power, I'm going to defer to two things. Um, one, I'm going to defer to the one that has the closest connection to the people who actually knew Jesus. Um, because I think the people who actually knew Jesus are most likely to um, have the right interpretations of scripture, right? Like right. Sola Scriptura didn't never really like really um, made a whole lot of logical sense to me to, to be quite frank. Um, I, the, the scriptures are a creation of the church and uh, a creation of documents created by a church father. So I want something that at least goes back to the church fathers. Um, so there's that side. And then there's also the side of taking the uh, shorthand that's Taleb-esque of I, I want to go to something that I think is uh, most likely to stand another, you know, 1500 to 2000 right. years. Um, so for me, it was, uh, I, I defaulted to like orthodoxy or, or Catholicism. Um, and then I had to dig into the question of the primacy of the chair of Peter, um, i.e. the papacy. And uh, he, there's a lot of good arguments on both sides of that debate. Um, I do think that it comes down somewhat clearly that that it was intended by the fathers that Rome have some sort of primacy. Um, and then everything, all the other debates between orthodoxy and Catholicism really extend out of that. So things like the filioque way um, and then you know, doctrinal differences. Um, so that, that, that wasn't a, a short elevator pitch for it, but my, my argument for somebody who would be in my shoes is like, okay, you have to, all the debates within Christianity, there's 44,000 different branches of Christianity. Right. You have to have some objective standard that you will, de that you will defer to. Exactly. And I think that objective standard is probably, and I think, I think any branch is going to say it's going to be Christ. And it's like, okay, any branch can claim that though. And often you'll see these certain branches say it's like some inspiration of the Holy spirit. And then you end up getting a lot of debates on like, well, who's inspired, who isn't inspired. You even see, you, you see this in the 16th century where all these different reformers um, and radical formers are anathematizing each other because they say they don't have the gift of the Holy spirit. <laughs> so it's like, okay, in that case, that's not what we're going to go base our arguments off of. We have to go to something even more fundamental. And I think it ends up being a historical chain. Um, and, I, and I think that that chain leads to, again, either orthodoxy or, or Catholicism. Um, I, I'd love to hear a pitch for Quakerism, though. I know very little about Quakerism, to be frank. Yeah, I, I think it, it it's kind of like you, and I say the inverse in that it's um, it's kind of like you read the New Testament and you're like, well, should there be this institution between me and God? Like, no, not at all. If that's what you take, then you're going to be like, you're going to be a Quaker. Like, kind so it of becomes like an, an ecclesiological question then. Right, right. But that's, and, and you have to kind of figure it out yourself. That's kind of yeah. one, one of the things, but you know, that that's, that's the primary difference. Every, I feel like everything else is like, well, you're claiming to be Catholic, but you're not really Catholic. Yeah, that's yeah, kind yeah. of my, that's my stance. And sorry if anyone out there. Is, you know, no, I mean, I, the, else, the, the, the church has done a terrible job of catechism over the last hundred years in particular, um, a catechesis. Um, you know, I live in a very Catholicized city and there are a lot of no nominal Catholics and a lot of shrinking parishes. Um, so I think institutionally, ecclesiologically, uh, th there is certainly, um, there are certainly things that need to be solved. <laughs> right. uh, and I, I find myself closer to some of my non-denominational friends, and I would suspect probably Quakers, 
uh, at times than I do with a lot of uh, people with that are formally within the church structure. You know, and I've heard some of the interpretations of Vatican II because um, this debate comes up in the Vatican II documents, right? Um, can can Christians outside the church, capital C church, be saved, right? And the the church's stance historically has been nobody outside of the church can be saved. However, the analogy that I've heard that kind of comes out of Vatican II is that you can imagine that the church is this massive, rickety, probably at times um, in deep, deep need of repair ship going from point A to point B. And sometimes off the side of the ship, you'll find dinghies. And these dinghies, the, you can think of these dinghies as certain other denominations. And sometimes those dinghies are actually on the right path with the ship. And there's all these bad things happening on the ship, all these right. problems, people need to be thrown off the ship, whatever. Um, but the ship keeps going ahead, right? And some of the dinghies will also make it there, right? And that's great. And those those people are, are our brothers, and we wanna we wanna treat them as our brothers. Um, and I and I've I've certainly seen that borne out with with some of my uh, and, and just just as a function of being on the ship does not mean you're like actually on the ship too. Right. You know, I uh, I I was recently watching old reruns of To Catch a Predator. And I, I, I uh, remember they're, they're asking uh, questions to this one guy that, get, that shows up. And if you haven't seen the show for listeners, it's this old show from the early 2000s with Chris Hansen on Dateline okay. NBC, where he would, they would set up um, internet predators in chat rooms. And then when they'd get to the house, they, they, there wouldn't actually be like a 14-year-old girl there. There would be Chris Hansen Chris and a news crew <laughs> and the police. Um, <laughs> And it, there's something like there's something weirdly deeply satisfying about it, um, especially the seasons where they actually have the police there. Uh, but at one point, in the police interview with this one guy, the police ask him like, you know, are you religious? And he says no. And they're like, not at all. And he's like, well, you know, I was raised Catholic. And the police ask him, you know, you know, didn't that stop you? And he's like, well, you know, I'm not actually really practicing. And the cop says something like, well, yeah, but they, you know, they've got lots of priests that do stuff like this. And the, the guy that they arrested made a really good point. And he said, well, they're not practicing Catholics either. Like just because they're priests does not actually make them right. practicing Catholics. And this can be hard ecclesiologically and from a soteriolo soteriology perspective for some people to grasp, because if you have a, a once saved, always saved uh, understanding of soteriology, um, like I remember when I told one of my Pentecostal friends, that's like, yeah, you know, there, there could be popes who are in hell, right? Like that's possible. Um, I don't know. He that that completely he, he was not able to grasp that. So the ecclesiology question is just a massive, massive question. Um, and I can understand how somebody ends up in a perspective where they think that, that the church is more of an invisible church. Again, I think if you read the church fathers, it's kind of clear that they didn't intend that that to be an interpretation. Um, but you know, I, I, I respect that interpretation um, more than I do. Like I was raised Episcopalian and I, I respect that interpretation more than I do like the Episcopalian interpretation. It's a really, really interesting question. Uh, Dad, did you have any questions? Well, it just oh, it Dad. brought to mind a lot of people describe Quakers as secular humanists, which mm. I think is really accurate. And then the other thing that brought to mind was we did the episode uh, on a podcast on Albion Seed where they talk about Quakers. And, 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 and that book sort of uh, made the case for Quakers not being very 
successful as a religion, but being really successful um, and helping create the modern world. Mm. Kind of the say something about that, Will. Right. Have you read Albion Seed by any I chance? Have not. David Hag Fisher. It's really a really excellent book. Um, but yeah, so you know, the four founding uh English kind of cultural groups that came to America and founded America, you know, Quakers, borderers, kind of the English cavaliers and um the Puritans. Anyway, yeah, his his thought is that well, you when you think of like modernity and you think of like the modern values a lot of people hold now it's like secular humanism and it's like the it's the values quakers held in the 1600s when they came over to pennsylvania and those ideas have kind of to a certain extent won the day in the cultural realm um and you don't see a lot of like competing alternative well you do see competing alternatives but um i think that's the thesis you're talking about dad is that right yes yeah i'm not familiar with the the argument from i mean I'm not familiar of, uh, with the the argument of how you go from the Quakers coming to Pennsylvania to the secular humanism of say the the early 20th century. Um, I'd have to fill myself in on that um, because I I think the natural conclusion of 1517 is secular humanism. Got um, it. Like I would I would say that that's the year the world ended, um, and and maybe you could say a new world began, but I, I think that's the the year where. Um, you know, one of my, uh, one of my, I guess I'd call him like an intellectual mentor, um, put it to me, put it well, where the, the adequation to, to reason that you have to make post 1517, when you are trying to understand divine revelation ends up sounding more like Schoenberg than it ends up sounding like Mozart, <laughs> Um, because you just, you lose any like basis for tonality, right? Got it. Um, once you, once you move to, to personal interpretation, um, I think you, you lose the basis for tonality. Um, and it's a fundamentally post fifteen seventeen, probably realistically post fifteen twenty one. um, the, the world, the, the frame of reference off of which we try to understand the world just shifts. Right. Definitely. And the natural conclusion from that is going to be something like humanism, um, right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I really, I think that's well put. And I guess I, I'm assuming you do, but do you believe in the physical resurrection? The the physical resurrection of the dead or the physical resurrection of Christ? Christ. Uh, I specified. do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I believe in both, um, but I, I do believe in the physical resurrection because again, I think if you look at the arguments against it, they end up being just as outlandish as the, as the actual claim that is put forward. <laughs> exactly. That's right. like mass hysteria of hundreds of people in Judea all at the same time it would be very odd. Yeah, yes. including some secular historians. Like it'd be yeah, exactly. very, very, very odd. Just even as a Bayesian, that's that's great. I really like that. Um, so I wanted to shift now to um, one more question, and then have I have an overrated underrated segment? If that's okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, so, it, and this is around career. So this is a total left turn. Um, sure. But if you had one lesson you give to people about their careers, what would it be? Um, and, you know, I, I'm a big fan of um, mental models and filters. Um, you use opportunity cost as the main way of trying to make career decisions. You know, I was talking to a young lady the other day who asked me, should I work on my company or should I go get a, a job working at a venture capital firm? And I told her, well, first of all, venture capitalists, we are glorified mortgage bankers. Like, <laughs> 
the job is not nearly as interesting as people try to make it seem like in certain ways it's super interesting and i love my job um but in other ways it's like i i i am looking at you know whether i'm trying to trust somebody enough to make a, a decision on on their business in the same way that old mortgage bankers would try to like get to know you in your hometown before they would make a decision to lend you a hundred thousand dollars right um and i tell her like the reason i i work in venture capital is um i have a terribly undiagnosed ADHD and I'm not, I can't focus long enough to be a founder. Um, but I told her also, just look at the opportunity cost, right? Like if, what are you going to learn by building your company over the summer versus what would you learn uh, by working at the VC firm and not being able to build your company over the summer, right? So I would, I would advise a lot of people think of, think of career decisions in that way. Um, 18 year olds, I always tell them like, look, get into the, get into the, the best college with the best financial aid you can get, and then immediately request uh, a gap year. And then go work on something in that gap year. If you're already working on something in high school, some passion, try to professionalize it in some kind of way, a startup, um, a, an initiative, anything like that. If you're not, you know, take your professional interests, cold email some people who work in that profession and see if you can intern for them for the next year, right? And then you can always go, then you, you're expected after the gap year to go to school. And so there's that forcing function that if you don't find something, you can go do that, whatever. Um, but if you're on a good track, you can indefinitely take that gap year. Once you're in, you're in. Like uh, universities have not kind of changed that policy. I, I, <laughs> I, I People don't understand that they, they don't immediately have to go to university right after um, they finish K-12. And I think a lot of people end up in the wrong place in their careers as a, for, as a function of going immediately to university. So if you end up thinking in terms of opportunity cost, that means that you can do things like, oh, you know, I can get into this school that I've been focusing on or whatever, or maybe you haven't been focusing on a school, great, whatever. Uh, and I can take that next year and I can do something productive with it. And if you get to the end of that year, again, apply the opportunity cost filter. If your business that you're working in, let's say you, you started a startup, if it's going really well and you can go raise a pre-seed round and you think you can get some good traction and then maybe go from there, the opportunity cost of going starting your freshman at school year at school is pretty darn high. <laughs> yeah, right. So you should probably keep working on the company. And then you can re-examine it again, right? Is the company doing well enough? Do you, should you be at the helm? Are you learning a lot of things? Is it valuable? Do you enjoy it? Will you enjoy it? Uh, and then make that decision again. So use some sort of filter like that. I think that's incredibly helpful for people. It was very liberating for myself when I started applying it. I think that's that's really an important uh, lesson and one people don't get enough. I, I wanted to ask you this, uh, you know, in the founders you work with and the ones you see, is it... Um, for the successful ones, is it just, you know, what are some of the more important factors? Is it just not giving up? And that, that was my personal experience with our, our company. It was just literally like this terrible, I, it's tough to, I describe it as being like a professional running back. I mean, you're getting hit constantly and <laughs> just like trying to stay healthy enough to play through the whole season. If you can make it to the Super Bowl. You're, you're good, but it, it, and, and so much of it is just trying to survive. I mean, we yeah. looked at it statistically and it was like, well, there was 12 separate occasions where we thought there was a higher than 75% chance we wouldn't be there the next week. And we just like kept figuring out, pulling out these miracles over and over again. Um, is it just tenacity? Is it, you know, of course you got to be smart. You know, there's all these prerequisites, but what do you think? What have you seen? 
uh, on like a, a meta level, meta skill level, yeah, grit is super important, um, especially if you're a solo founder. Like we almost exclu- exclusively invest in teams. Got it. Um, when we do invest in solo founders, they're either people we know really well or they're people who are very experienced uh, because it's lonely. <laughs> right. Like I'm sure everything you're talking about, like if you didn't have somebody to lean on, share it with, you, yeah, we'd be lost nice. your mind. <laughs> yeah. Most people would. Uh, it's really, really, really hard. Um, from a more practical level or like a more, you know, actionable level, I'm a right. huge fan of customer discovery. Um, Interesting. Talk to, because again, I'm working out with companies at the pre-seed stage. They, when I first start talking to them, they may not have any customers. Um, typically when we invest, they have like at least two pilot uh, B2B customers. Um, but I tell them, look, I need you to talk to a hundred people who are in your user profile who don't know you. Uh, and if you actually talk to hundred people, you're going to get an insane amount of information. They'll both help you in product development, but also help you in sales and marketing. And somebody as a founder who's comfortable with talking to hundred people and reaching out to plenty of people who are going to tell them to F off, like that, that's an important personal skill to build. Um, that, that's huge. That, that's, and that, that's an important part of the tenacity. You know, we have a, a company in our second fund that Mike and Danielle made the investment in, uh, early on that was a travel company and then march 2019 happened or oh, 2020, sorry, march 2020 right jesus um jesus. so they they had to pivot and the founder um she's one of the best people i know at customer discovery she they made a couple of different uh ideas of products a couple of different user verticals that they could look at they targeted um the one that they thought was probably the least oversold to uh, which ended up being office managers. And she talked to a hundred plus office managers about what kind of problems they have. And they pivoted their uh, travel software company to being a, a software company that helps office managers with their, their tasks and their cues. Um, and it's, they have actually like pretty good traction. Their users love them. And that's just a function of doing really good customer discovery. Um, so I, I think that's, that's a huge part uh, you know, for things we look for, this is less something that can be developed. And I think it's something that people just kind of have as a function of their personalities. Um, something Mike and Danielle call hyperfluency. It's the ability for somebody to speak on a complex topic at multiple levels. Interesting. Uh, so in, it's particularly important in the deep tech field because we're a generalist fund. We are not scientists ourselves and we have to review things like nuclear batteries and quantum computers and GPS 3.0 and LIDAR and how do we do that as non-scientists, right? And a big part of it, a, a GP at another fund recently asked me, you know, you're investing in really often, often young founders. Um, how do you, how, how is a 20 year old going to take a company to go public someday, right? The answer is they build a very good team around them, right? And part of being able to build a really good team is being able to speak with hyperfluency on multiple levels. So if you're a 20-year-old who's talking about nuclear batteries that are the size of tabletops, you better be able to speak with a peer, a peer who's 55 and is a nuclear scientist who's been talking about miniaturizing nuclear reactors for the last 30 years of his career, right? right. And you also need to be talking on a level where you're able to hire more entry-level people. Um, and you're also going to need to be able to talk to a level, on a level where you can talk to your investors who are probably like way down here 
and really need you to make sense of what you're working on. So hyperfluency is that ability to jump between those levels without uh, putting up what, what we also call a cloud of abstraction, where uh -huh. sometimes, especially on complex matters, people will abstract out and they'll, they'll end up using all these acronyms and all these this jargon to make it sound like they know a lot. And at the end of the day, they actually probably know less than they think they know as a function of that. In the humanities, I, I'm convinced, uh, you know, I, I studied philosophy myself and I'm convinced this is what the postmodernists do. It's like I, continental philosophy. Yeah, it's yes. like, I'm like, man, like, I, I, I can't tell if you have anything important to say. It's like Hegel or you're just saying nothing. You're trying to, you know. Right, and most people will therefore defer to thinking you're saying something really important. <laughs> I think it should be the opposite. Yeah. I know, that, 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 that was my experience as well. But you can find, you can find online, I forget what it's called. It's something like the postmodern um paper generator oh the, yeah the, this is that the scandal where they sent it to this like huge journal and it got accepted and it was completely... no that's the Sokol affair that's something okay. similar though it's we can different. talk about that i'm just talking about it. it's one of these things it's like a lorem ipsum generator okay you just press but, but, it, but it just generates jargon that if you <laughs> presented it at one of these conferences you would probably like actually be able to present it so what you're talking about is the socal affair um i think that's what it's called the socal or skokal affair something like that where I think it was a math mathematicians wrote up jargon papers like like um, gibberish gibberish yeah. papers full of postmodern jargon and submitted them to certain journals and humanities like reputable journals and they got accepted and they're like papers this is, weren't saying this is anything yeah and, and oh, it was just such an indictment of how postmodern thinking uh ends up clouding the the ability of one to even judge postmodern thinking right <laughs> and, I, and i think you know realistically i don't think that this is like some grand conspiracy or anything yeah. like that um realistically what i think it is is we've we've overproduced um phd holding um uh, individuals in the humanities who are all talking to each other and they need to find more to talk to each other about as a function of justifying their jobs and getting more grad students to come in to talk to each other about more things that they can all talk to each other about. Yep. It's utterly self-referential, just going yeah, around exactly. and around. That's, that's exactly what I think it is. I think that, yeah. Man, it's a wild world. Um, so overrated or underrated? I, I'm going to throw a term, at, term out and just tell me why it's overrated, underrated. Maybe give me a sentence about it or two, whatever you feel like. Um, so David Schmitz, overrated, underrated? Oh, underrated. Yeah, he's no, got I mean, I, I think he's just not, he's not well known out of like certain goofy, like libertarian adjacent circles in, in the philosophy world. We're talking about at, at University of Arizona, right? Yep, yep. And his life story, I mean, he was a postman and then he like, you know, became this philosopher. It's it's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I never, I never met David, but um I think that unless you're talking to a very weird, like libertarian adjacent group of people in academia, they don't know a whole lot about his work in inside liberalism, um, you know, as, as a school of thought. I only had one professor in school who was a, um, like one of the world leading Rawlsians who even knew about him. Oh, um, wow. Really? Yeah. No, it's such that, a shame. Yeah, no, I, I think that his, his work is really, really underappreciated. And again, they, U of A has produced a lot of very prolific people. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Brennan got his PhD there. I, I think you're right. Uh, have you read Schmitz's uh, property rights paper? I think it's- No, I haven't. It, okay. It, he describes the Roanoke colony in Virginia and how everyone starved okay. because it was, you know, they, they had to collectively share the calories they produced. 
So, you know, if the three of us were on the island and, and I went out and hunt a rabbit, we had to oh, split I, it. Yeah, ways. I've heard this argument. I, yeah. I haven't read the paper. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just, on the on the life story um, note too, like I, I have an interview somewhere. I don't even know if it's still hosted somewhere um, with Jason Brennan where he's talked about his life story and like he had to work in a factory as a kid uh, and like came from a like a relatively impoverished New England family and is now probably one of the best compensated philosophers in America and is a function of that in the world uh, and, and also in the, probably the top percentile of, of output. Um, so really these, impressive. These people, like whether or not, whether you agree with them or not, uh, they're, they're deeply impressive individuals to get to that level. Well put. Um, Nozix, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Overrated, underrated? Among libertarians, I think it's overrated. Um, but again, outside of the like little libertarian and libertarian adjacent world, I, I again, I also think it's underrated. Um, this is one of these books where so much of the book focuses, so much of the literature on the book and the conversation in the book focuses on the response to Rawls. But the, the first part of the book is actually a response more or less to Rothbard. Um, and he's, he's trying to make the case for why Rothbard is wrong. So the first part of the book and the third part of the book, Anarchy and Utopia, are dramatically understudied. Um, and, and I think, and I think that they're, they're underrated. Um, I think utopia is just a really fun section to right. pull out. Like it, <laughs> so it's one of these ones where when we talk about it, we've, we've done a few workshops at fifteen seventeen on things like polycentric governance. And there's just like some very fun sections you can pull out of the utopia section in anarchy state and utopia. Um, Nozick just as, again, as an individual was just like really impressive um, and surprisingly fun. For years, I was working with a friend of mine, um, Chris Nelson, to try to find there are very few recordings of Nozick. Actually, um, I, I've noticed this too. I can't, I've never been able to find him talking, and he wasn't around. It's not that he, he was around in the 18th century or something. I mean, we we found one in in the Harvard Library. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and I think somebody got it online because um, we were looking at trying to get it online. There was so we found one in the Harvard Library. I've just heard from from people who are privy to the matters that just personality wise, Nozick and Rawls, you know, they were, they were contemporaries teaching at Harvard at the same time. We're just polar opposites as people. <laughs> really? Uh, Nozick was, you know, a very uh, charismatic, um, very, he was, he was handsome. Like he could come up with these crazy thought experiments kind of on the spot. Um, whereas Rawls was a much more melancholic figure. Um, wow. Much more reserved, uh, much more your, your kind of, typical philosophy professor that you would expect um and nozick would always be teaching i think with a can of something like diet coke so it's not a surprise he died of stomach cancer right <laughs> Jeez, poor guy yeah, yeah. Th that, that's really interesting and, and it kind of it, it makes sense when you read their works you know how the, it's interesting how per, per, one's personality plays into i think he's just so witty like anarchy yeah. oh, yeah. is a fun read um he has, he has a bunch of other things too that are really fun. There's one I, I, I constantly come back to that is online hosted by the Cato Institute um, called Why Do Intellectuals Oppose Capitalism? That I think is, is really incisive as well. And he, he kind of makes the argument that a, a capitalist society doesn't mirror, um, like the meritocracy in a, in a capitalist order is very different than the meritocracy in a school. And intellectuals oh, are people who succeed very well in school. And people who succeed in a capitalist order, more or less, there's there's not a rhyme or rhythm to it that you could institutionalize like in school. 
Now, again, I think like we talked about at the beginning here, a lot of the traits that do select for people who succeed in school are people who are going to succeed in life, period. But it doesn't work the other way around where just because you succeed in school or you're going to succeed in life. Um, so you, you get a lot of people who could be very successful in the, uh, who could be very successful in school who are not going to be very successful in the real world. That makes sense. Um, Gerard. I, and I, I feel like it kind of depends in tech. He seems again, all of these come down to like who I'm, who you know, am I who talking, talking to? to right? Right? Exactly. Um, yeah, no, I mean, again, uh, I, I wouldn't even say that he's overrated in tech. Um, I still think he's underrated. People like talking about him because then they it means like, oh, I read something that Peter Thiel talks about. Oh, oh, oh look at me. Uh, <laughs> too, too real. Zach. Too yeah, real, no, man. no. Like, I, my Lenten penance this year has been to get off Twitter, and it has been nice. so good. Um, <laughs> I might not go back. I, I go back on the Sundays because those are non-penitential days. And every time I'm there, I'm like, why am I here? What am I doing? Um, I, at, at some point, you know, in a year, find this podcast. And if I'm still on Twitter by then, I bet you that the only people I will follow will be like nuns and priests. And the Pope. <laughs> Great. Like I, I, and like maybe my colleagues, like, <laughs> if that, um, yeah, I, again, I think in tech, people are looking at the wrong thing. They're, they're talking about just mimetic theory in yeah. general. Like, yes, people are imitative. That's not that insane. Right. Right. Um, I think it gets interesting when, you talk about, well, what are the implications from mimetic theory? And the, you know, we recently hosted a, a clubhouse conversation on this um, at our firm. And I, there's a, my, my recommended Gerard book that anybody read is I see Satan fall like lightning. I love that um, book. Yeah, I it's really great. Love that book. It, it, first of all, the translation's good. I, I you know, yeah. people will tell you, you know, either start with um, scapegoat, which is fine. Um, or, Sometimes people say um, things hidden since the foundation of the Ooh. world. That's like, that's like telling someone like, oh, you're interested in, in Ayn Rand, go read Atlas Shrugged. It's like, no, no, no. Like maybe go. Re I remember I ran into a girl in high school who I saw had Atlas Shrugged and I asked her if she was reading and she said, I'm just reading John Galt's speech because that's the whole book. Like if I read that, then I know everything I need to know about Ayn Rand. <laughs> like, that's, that's actually a really good point. And it's the length of a book too. It's like yeah. 200 pages. Um. Gerard, you want to you want to read I See Satan Fall Like Lightning because the the for, first of all the, the preface is one of the best Q and A's on mimetic theory out there. It's written by um, the translator whose name is escaping me right now, uh, but it's just a great Q and A on what what mimetic theory is. Then the rest of the book is translated very well, so it's not too dense, and it's looking at mimetic theory through the lens of the Gospels, and whether or not you are religious. Obviously, based on our conversation, I am. But even if you're not, you should still have some basic grasp of the gospel story. If you if you grew up in Western civilization, you should have some general grasp of what happened, right? There's this guy named Jesus that people thought was, some people thought was like, maybe God, they weren't sure and caused some problems. And then the Romans and, and the Jewish leaders at the time had him crucified and then he rose from the dead. Like most people get some basic understanding of that if they've seen Christmas and Easter, right? And there's a lot in that that Gerard pulls out on what, what mimesis does to a community, but also how one can avoid the horrors of what mimesis can do to a community. Mimesis left unchecked. Um, 
you know, people will often say, you know, if you're looking at, if you're, if you're going through kind of the process that I went through for a couple of years, where you're kind of looking at different religious systems, there's this really cynical interpretation of Christianity. That's just the same retelling of the same Mesopotamian and right. stories right. That, that you'd heard time and time again. Right. There's, you know, you'll hear people come up and they'll say, well, you know, there was this, this, there was this deity that came 2000 years before Jesus and he was sacrificed and rose from the dead. Gerard points out one really important distinction here is that the Christian gospel narratives take the perspective of the victim. And they are the first real example of a narrative to do that, where all these other ones did not take the perspective of, of the sacrifice victim. They took the perspective of the crowd. And when you take the perspective of the victim and that, that care for victims, you end up flipping the entire order on its head. Uh, and whether, whether you know, the, the outcome from that means that like, oh, maybe there's some explanatory power to Christianity, or it means like, oh, maybe I should be very cognizant of what mimetic um, desire ends up causing to a community and how to prevent the, prevent the violence that comes as a function of that doesn't really matter to me when it comes to reading Girard. Um, I think if you go not deep enough in Girard, Girard himself was Catholic, you're going to end up finding a lot of theology. Um, so, you know, it's like, on the underrated or overrated question, I was talking to uh, my spiritual director, you know, maybe nine months ago, um, a priest at a parish nearby, and I was just asking him. You know, they had like six priests. At, they have like six priests at this parish, and I was asking him about the other priests there, and and like who's good at spiritual direction, who has that charism, right? Like right. spiritual direction, who doesn't? He said, you know, like oh, Father Peter might have it, but he's he's a little bit on the younger side, you know. Father Michael, it's not really his thing, but he's he. You might be interested in talking to him. Just take it. You're interested in ideas. He's really interested in this really obscure thinker called Rene Girard. He wrote his, his dissertation on him. He's very interested in the guy. I'm like, oh no, I'm actually, I, I actually <laughs> guy. Like, know a bit about Girard. I would love to talk to him. And then when I talked to Father Michael, he was just astonished to hear that there's like this weird cult following among like tech professionals. Right. In particular, he was very confused by this. He's like, why? And I told him, it's mostly because Peter Thiel mentioned him in a best-selling book and talks about him occasionally. Um, so th that even shows you like very much underrated in the in the culture at large. Like Girard is, is fairly popular among um, Catholic thinkers. Like Bishop Barron has uh, references him fairly often. Um, you know, Bishop Barron's organization put together a beautiful uh, binding of the gospels where Girard is cited in the commentary several times, but outside of like weird niche Catholic thinkers and tech people, very underappreciated in the culture at large. I will, I will say he is overrated when Rene Girard is cited on cable news, like primetime cable news. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I think that's well put. And and you talk about uh, you know, all these philosophers have having really interesting life stories. I mean, Gerard, you know, he I saw maybe it was an interview with him, but you know, he said I, I did my, you know, PhD and I never read any of the books. And then I'm like trying to figure things out in my life. And then he he, he stumbles upon this and it's 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 fascinating. It's really fascinating. Yeah, really interesting story how he ends up essentially becoming a philosopher of everything. <laughs> right. <exactly. laughs> I think something he would object to being called, but that's what he ends up becoming. Definitely. Um, Zach, uh, any other closing thoughts here? Where can people find you? This has been a lot of fun. Um, best place is my personal website, zackslayback.com, Z-A-K-S-L-A-Y-B-A-C-K.com. Um, I have an email list. I send out an email right now. It's maybe like once every two months. Um, I, I don't try to spam people with that. Uh, I 
am ostensibly on Twitter. Um, <laughs> on Sundays. Yeah, on Sundays and, and class one feast days. Um, so I, I, depending on when people listen to this, if it's after Easter, I'll probably be back on Twitter. Um, not sure how active I am. I'll be there. But, um, you know, my DMs are open. Love chatting with people. Um, and yeah, people can always email me. My, my email information is on my, on my uh, website. Great. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 